following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. So it's good to be back. We were away for a couple of weeks and very grateful to the Daniels who uh, were here. Uh, Daniel de Grossier led worship for two weeks and uh, Daniel Avaton and Dan or Daniel McKinnon provided, uh, led the service and gave the messages. And I've been hearing good things, both from some of you and from them. So I'm very grateful for that. We've been looking at the letter of 1 John, um, which I have found to be quite an, an experience myself. Just try to fix this. Um, as I've been getting it into this letter, and it's, it's, it's quite different from other letters in the New Testament, especially when you compare him to Paul. Uh, Paul's letters are a lot more of what you might call linear. He says this, and then it follows with that, and then it follows with the next thing, and then he's building and building and building. Sometimes he goes off on a tangent, but then he'll come back. And it, it, there's a sense that his letters are very orderly, which makes sense because... Uh, Paul was an extraordinary scholar. Uh, from before he, he knew the Lord Jesus, he was well-read in the scriptures and seems in, in other literature. He spoke several languages. He was, a, he was somewhat cosmopolitan. John, on the other hand, was a fisherman. We would call a person like that a, a blue-collar worker. We don't know how much education that he had. We don't know how literate he actually was. This is something that's really come to me in the past little while, um, seeking to understand this, that the, if it wasn't the people who were writing the scriptures, certainly the people who were, quote-unquote, reading the scriptures themselves, where did they go? Hi, guys. <laughs> what happened? Okay. It sounded pretty loud already, I thought, and now it's really loud. No, no, no. No, 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 no. It was fine. Wasn't it fine the way it was? Yeah. yeah, it was already fine. Okay, how are we now? Okay, I'll start at the beginning. No, I won't. <laughs> I'll try to find my place. So it appears that many of the people who have read, actually, most people in the first century and before never read the scriptures, they heard the scriptures. They were far more of an oral society than we are today. And oral societies express thought through words differently than more literate societies do. And that's helped me to understand why John seems to go around and around and around in how he is explaining what he's, what he's uh, writing to these people. Most likely, and Paul did the same thing, the letters of the New Testament weren't physically written by their writers or their authors, they uh, were dictated by somebody who knew how to write. And then as these letters would be distributed, they would be read by someone who knew how to read. Most of the people wouldn't get a copy. They didn't distribute. Like they, uh, John didn't put the letter, uh, the recipients in the, in the BCC of his emails and distribute it to thousands of people. People would gather in uh, assemblies, fellowships, and they would hear it read. And so there are, 
the way this letter is communicated lends itself to a more oral type of society. It's interesting, when we listen to the the kids' message, and and Robin's been sharing about the fruit of the Spirit, which comes from Paul's letters, there's something very similar in what what Paul writes compared to what John writes, even though they express themselves very, very differently. And so both in Paul and in John, it's very clear that we will do something that Jesus taught, and that is, you will know them by their fruits. That the way you determine whether somebody actually is a true believer, a true follower of Jesus, is how that is expressed through their lives. We know in James, another letter, written also very differently, James will will write, faith without works is dead. And some people, especially Protestants and evangelicals in particular, have had a hard time with that concept because we're taught very strongly that we are saved by faith alone. But the problem with that concept has a lot to do that we have misunderstood what faith is. When we understand biblically that faith is trust and not simply something that we think in our heads, then it becomes more obvious that that which you trust will become evident by how you live. If you trust something or someone, a thought or a concept, you will respond accordingly. One just follows the other. And yet, even in the first century, it seemed that there was this idea that somehow we could we can separate faith from how we live. And so whether it's Paul, who in the book of Romans, he so brilliantly explains how everybody has fallen short of God's glory. Everybody has sinned. Everybody, no one has reached God's standards by virtue of how they lived. And so we need God to come and rescue us. And he's done that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by our trusting in him, We are made right with God. And and Paul explains that so strongly that in Romans chapter 6, he has to teach the Roman believers against the idea that even though this salvation we have is so magnificent, we mustn't take it for granted by saying, well, why don't we sin that grace will abound? It seems there is something in Paul's logic that could lend us to believe that it doesn't matter how we live. As long as we really believe in Jesus, whatever that means, then it doesn't matter what we do. And that kind of teaching has has cropped up again and again and again for the past 2,000 years. And it was, it's, it's as wrong now as it was wrong in Paul's day and James' day and in, in, in uh, John's day. And we, we need to note that it is a problem, that there's a tendency to so rely on the concept of believing in Jesus is good enough, it doesn't matter what we do. We, we, that comes to us over and over again that we need to be reminded that that is not true, that if our lives do not evidence the reality that we claim to have, then according to John, we don't have the reality. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at John chap- 1 John chapter 3 that was read for us. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. But let's lead in, uh, because we haven't done this in a while, 
Uh, three weeks ago, we were looking at the end of chapter 2, and I'd like to read the last two verses of that where John writes, and remember that means John dictated, and now little children abide in him, abide in Jesus, so when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, when he says everyone that practices righteousness has been born of him, he's not saying that every do-gooder is a child of God. He's writing to people who claim to have faith in Jesus. And he's, he's saying, therefore, the people who live out the fruit of their faith are the ones that have been born of him. So an evidence that someone is truly God's child is their lives exhibit right living. Chapter 3, verse 1. This seems to be a bit of a, of a, a break in John's thought. He kind of gets excited. It doesn't sound that exciting in the translation where we read, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It, he's actually saying something along the lines of, look at how amazing God's love towards us is that we would be called his children. And the language here is the language of adoption, that we were not God's children. But God's love was so magnificent and generous and infinite and good and wonderful that we've been selected to be his children. And then he says, and so we are. Which it seems to me this is a little sign of the oral nature, not only of of John's dictation, but that he comes from a very oral culture. Because he's talking about adoption and then it, it, it's, it's as if he's going, look at, look how great God's love is. He's adopted us, but we're really his children. And so are we adopted or are we like generated from God, which is something that comes out of John's gospel. The idea that, that those who put our, our trust in him have been truly born of God. So there's an adoption concept happening because God's gone out of his way to say you I choose you I give my name to you but there's also this idea that something has happened in the spiritual realm that we have truly become his children in the second half of verse 3 he says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him The believers of John's day that he's writing to, part of this community, it might have been the seven churches listed in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation, that these were churches that John had some oversight over. And they were going through various trouble. And the trouble that he's mainly addressing is trouble that's being brought to the community by those who had claimed to be following Jesus And either now they've given up on Jesus entirely and have developed a spirituality based on the teaching of Jesus, but don't think they really need Jesus. Or they have new versions of Jesus that aren't really Jesus. But whatever it is that they are not in line with the true teaching of Jesus that has come through John to these communities. And what's happening is there's this uh, rejection animosity, pressure, 
that's coming upon the true followers, the true followers of Jesus. And John is saying the reason why the world, he's saying these people who claim faith in Jesus or something like uh, the things we've been teaching but don't really, they're of the world. They're of the stuff of the creation. They're just figuring things out on their own. They're making things up out of their head and they're causing a lot of trouble for you. And the reason why they're causing trouble for you is because they don't know Jesus. Verse 2. Beloved. It's like dear friends, those whom my heart longs for. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And here again in this one verse, there's this, John does this circular thing. He, he talks about things in, in kind of like, it's not a roundabout way. He's not beating around the bush. He, he talks about things from all these various angles at once. So on one hand, we are truly God's children. But what that really means has not been yet fully seen or experienced. That's going to happen when Jesus appears. So it's not as if we're not really God's children and we will only become truly God's children when he returns and he makes us that. No, 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 that's wrong. We really, 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 really are God's children now. But the fullness of that has not yet been experienced. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now as I've been studying this in preparation for sharing this with you this morning, I had to deal with the fact that I have misunderstood this verse in the past. I don't know where I got this from. Perhaps I made it up. I'm pretty sure I've shared this here from this pulpit. So it's necessary to correct it. I used to think that what this meant was that if we have hope in the Lord's coming, that that has a purifying effect. And I really like that idea. I still like that idea. Maybe there's some truth in that too. But that's not what this is saying. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And I fought for my understanding of this. So one of my colleagues at St. Timothy's, where I'm the Bible teacher, St. Timothy's Classical Academy that uses our facility during the school year, uh, one of the teachers there is an expert in Greek. And every now and then, I send him my Greek questions. So I, I have some knowledge of Greek. I can understand what the commentaries are saying. But especially when I'm not agreeing with the commentaries, I email Dr. Claussen and I, and I see, is there any justification to my weird and wonderful idea? And once I think he said maybe. <laughs> but most of the time it's no, 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 no. The experts have it right. And so what this is saying is, is not that just because we have hope in him, it automatically purifies himself. And maybe this is more obvious to you in the English than it was to me. This is saying that everyone who hopes in Jesus and his coming takes the time to purify themselves. That we don't leave ourselves the way we are. It's like when you are going out to something important and you want to make a good impression, you get yourself all ready for that. You take a shower or a bath. You put on the nice clothes. You, you check more than usual about the stains and the whatever before you go out because you have this expectation. And if we have the expectation that the righteous and pure one is coming and he's coming to judge, what is 
the, the response to that from the person who truly has this hope. We could say we have this hope, but if we don't really have this hope, then we're not going to prepare. That's why when the Bible talks about faith, it means true faith. So if we really have this trust, we really have this hope, then what are we going to do? We're going to make ourselves ready by purifying ourselves. We're going to deal with the issues in our lives and not put up with the ways that we're not really like him. And now he makes it really clear in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. All through 1 John, there's no wiggle room. You're either in or you're out. And he's saying here that there's those who truly have this expectation, they're going to take it seriously. They're going to deal with the junk in their lives. But those who don't, the people who make a practice of going against God's standards, they also practice this thing called lawlessness, which might sound that he's simply repeating himself, which would not be surprising for John. But this lawlessness idea seems to be um, lawlessness is the realm of the devil. Outside, the devil lives completely outside of how God does things. Robin shared when she talked about the fruit of the Spirit, goodness, that before she came to know the Lord, lying meant nothing to her. It's just what you did. I grew up in a similar household. You, if you're able to get away with it, you got away with it. We were only concerned about things in life that we did what was right when we knew we'd get in trouble if we did what was wrong. And even then. And this is where the person who does not know the Lord lives. Those who disregard God live in the realm of the devil. And those who practice sinning, that is where they live. Verse 5 you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So we've got these two realms. We've got the realm of God, which is pure, which is righteous, and that's where the followers of Jesus live and practice. While those who don't know him, no matter what they say, they live in the realm of the devil. And so, because there's no sin in him and we're following him, then we should want nothing to do with sin. He says, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So no one who's in intimate relationship with Jesus goes on sinning. No one, verse 6 continues, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John is very, very clear that those, those who go against God and how they live on a regular basis have no relationship with God whatsoever. They're not born of God. They're not Jesus followers. They're out. And he's saying this over and over again in the book. And so people grappling with this book have also grappled with the idea, is John in this letter teaching some sort of version of what's called sinless perfection. Is John saying that if you ever mess up, I hope you don't mind my using more common phrases and not so technical ones. If, 
Is John saying, anybody who messes up is out? Anyone who messes up is a hypocrite? Everyone who messes up is in the realm of the devil? Is that what he's saying? The answer is no. Because at the beginning of his letter, he makes it clear. If anyone says they have no sin, they're a liar and the truth's not in them. But if you confess your sins, you're, you, um, he is... Um, I know, I know this, I say it all the time. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you. And it's pretty clear, this, John's not saying this just happens at the beginning of your walk with God in Jesus. That this idea that sin is not an issue to be ever dealt with by God's people, no, that's nonsense. That's not it. We need to be honest about, I'll use the term, the ways we mess up. It's similar to, um, what's going on here is similar to Jesus' teaching when he washes the disciples' feet. I believe Dan was going to talk about that. I I wasn't here, so I don't know what he said. I've talked about it before, um, where there was a misnomer when when Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter thought this was terrible, that the master would do such a thing, and he said, well, you have to if you want to be part of me. He said, wash my hands and my head too. And Jesus explains that when, he says, you've already been cleansed. If you've already been cleansed, all you need to do is have your feet washed. And so the teaching there is, the world is filthy, dirty, and is in a state of lawlessness. And unless we come into relationship with Jesus, we'll be left in that state forever. The good news is that we could come to Jesus and be cleansed. And once we're cleansed, we don't have to worry about getting re-cleansed and re-cleansed and re-cleansed. A child of God is a child of God, to change the metaphor. If you're born of God, you're born of God. But children of God do mess up. We do sin. And Jesus talks about that as if getting our feet dirty. Through the course of our living life, our feet get dirty and we need our feet to be, to be washed. So to pretend that you don't have stinky feet due to living in this world, you're lying, John says. Everybody, now of course now, well, some people, because of shoes and socks, have stinkier feet than ever, and you know who you are. But you know what that's like. Feet get stinky. Feet get dirty just by the course of living. We sin through the course of living. But the child of God does not make a practice of sinning. The child of God does not, we don't excuse our sinning. If we excuse our sinning, and we've met people who have claimed, I love Jesus, I follow him, but what about, don't talk about that. Where there's an unwillingness, a complete and absolute unwillingness to deal with certain issues in in our lives. I'm very aware that some people have serious habitual problems. But are they excused? Or is there, a, is there a broken hardness before God that he would deal with this? What is the realm in which we are living? And it seems, so when he talks about keeps on sinning, he's talking about the person who has a lifestyle of uh, excusing their sin, living unrighteous lives, and actually really doesn't care. The child of God, when we mess up, we care about it. It breaks our hearts. And we seek to do something about it.
Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We're following the one who came to destroy. The word is more like loosen. Set people free from the works of the devil. And are we going to be part of that program? Or are we going to further the darkness? Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. No one knows for sure what John is talking about here by God's seed. Could be the Holy Spirit. It could simply be Jesus. It's possible it's talking about God's life force is at work in the life of the true believer. Because we're born of God and we're God's children, our life is, is bent in the direction of life and goodness and righteousness. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now again, this sounds like very cut and dry, that if we do wrong things, we're out. That is not what he's saying. We need to understand the whole letter together. Remember, they would have heard the whole letter at once. I've encouraged uh, you if you have, I encourage, how do I say that? I've mentioned before, it would be a really good idea to read through this letter even more than once. It's not long, and it makes a difference when you read the whole thing at once. When you read the whole thing at once, it's clear. He's not saying that there's no room at all for sin in the life of the believer. It has to do with our main approach to life, our basic lifestyle. And he's, but he's clear. That if our lifestyle is one that does not practice righteousness, that person is not of God. And then he throws in back to a theme that he's been uh, speaking about already and will speak about again, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Part of living righteousness is caring about other believers. And first and foremost, those within our own congregation. We are family, and here's our expression of that family And if we truly know the Lord, we need to care about one another. And if we could care less, then we'd be well advised to get right with God and look to Him to help us care for one another in the way that He wants us to. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You. We thank You that Your Word is is clear. While it can be hard to understand, it is still clear. Lord, we acknowledge that we don't live always as we should. We thank you for your forgiveness. But help us, Lord, not to take it for granted. Instead, Lord, may we be serious with you and hear your voice and obey you because we're yours. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to do this on our own. But you provide a new birth and the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us the power to be the people you want us to be. Lord, show us where we've made excuses. 
and help us to come into the light that you might fill us with that light and that we would not run away, but that you would enable us to be everything that you want us to be. Knowing your forgiveness for our sins day by day and living a life reflective of who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.